If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Before I read the text that we will be investigating today, I want to give a what I believe is a biblical, Christ-centered appeal to be a part of the outreach of this church. Imagine yourself over 500 years ago. You're living in continental Europe. And church for you on a Sunday morning is going and hearing a man speak in a language you do not know. The Bible is not written in a language you can read, if you can read at all. And in order to feel like God has forgiven you, you're given the impression that you have to pay money to the church. And you're given the impression that unless you act in certain ways and do certain things that God won't forgive you. And even if you do all those things, you might have to spend thousands of years in purgatory, suffering unimaginable pain to pay off sins that you've committed, even though heaven is in your final destination. So imagine that. That's your relationship to God. That is the ironclad presentation of forgiveness of sins from the Roman Catholic Church. And that might be somewhat overstated in some ways because not all Roman Catholics think that, but that was how it was in the 16th century. So, a young monk named Martin Luther did not want to start anything. He just wanted to have a discussion with his students at the university in Wittenberg about the practice of indulgences. And the practice of indulgences was you can pay money to the church, you can help fund the construction of St. Peter's, the Basilica in Rome, and you pay money to the church and God will forgive the sins or pay off the sins of your relatives still in purgatory so that they have to spend less time there. Martin Luther didn't like this. He thought it was unbiblical, and it is. So he nailed 95 theses or arguments against the practice of selling indulgences on the church door at Wittenberg. In Latin. So the population, it, it was just meant to be a debate between him and his students. But because years before the Gutenberg printing press had been created, someone took that pamphlet from the church door, which is where everyone posted their stuff. It was like the public bulletin board. It was Facebook, right? <laughs> so one of his students took that, translated it into German, and then they started churning out copies. And the day that he did that, the day that he nailed the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, was All Saints Day. All Saints Day is the day that we now more commonly refer to as Halloween. And it is unfortunate that this day that God chose, All Saints Day, which for the Catholics was celebrating those who had come before 
all the saints and all of the uh, important people in the church who had died, he would gather on All Saints Day and commemorate what God had done through their lives. And God picked that day to providentially inspire a young monk to make a Facebook post. And his students translated into German, and it sparked what we now refer to as the Protestant Reformation, the true gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone was illegal. You would be killed, and many were killed for preaching that. So this coming Halloween, or All Saints Day, I refer to it as Reformation Day. We're going to have trunk or treat, which means bring your car, either decorate it yourself or Elaine will help you decorate it. And we're going to invite children from our neighborhoods surrounding us. And you'll be given pamphlets to invite people in your neighborhoods to come and hear the gospel. Yes, they're going to get candy. Yes, they're going to get to dress up in a costume. But the main reason is so that by any means possible, we might tell them that they can be justified before God through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the heart of this event. It's not just some silly handing out of candy. We're trying to get people here however we can. As long as we're not sinning, this is a great opportunity. They're going to either come to your door or they're going to come to this church and you get the opportunity to tell them. So if you don't have the opportunity to decorate your car and you, do know, you don't even know what to do, just show up with your car and be ready to hand out candy and the good news of the gospel. So talk to Elaine if you want to be a part of that. With that said, let's turn to Hebrews. I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching or doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls from God that falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. 
and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you not, may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Preaching is the call or the command, the commission to speak for God. Saying what God says and saying it in the way that he says it. And nothing else. If you look at Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, the elders of the Ephesian church, and he says to them as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's pretty sure he's going to die. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. How can Paul say that? How can he say, I am innocent of your blood? For or because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The basis on which Paul says my conscience is clear and I'm innocent of the blood of all of you is that he did not shrink back or he did not fail to, or he did not turn aside from declaring to the Ephesian church and to the elders the whole counsel of God. And he was only there two years in Ephesus. The whole counsel of God includes the hard things, especially texts like this today. I can honestly say that I've been working on this sermon for over five, six years, and I'm still not happy about it. It makes me uncomfortable, this text. This top two, top three most difficult texts in the New Testament. And the other one's in Hebrews 2. Chapter 10. It can't always be happy. It can't always be glib. But we can point each other to deeper joy. And that's the point of this text. Especially seen in how it ends. You must have joy in the truth. A perfect example of this is what happens when they read the whole law. Nehemiah has returned and rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah gathers the people. The governor gathers the people. And Ezra reads the law. The entire 
law from sunrise to sunset and everyone's standing the entire time in the square in Jerusalem hearing the law and they begin weeping because they realize how they have disobeyed God's law. So they find brokenness over sin and then the command to them is don't cry anymore because you've cried. Don't weep anymore because you've weeped. For the word to have its full effect, it must bring brokenness and we must hear the hard things so that we can have joy. And then they command them to celebrate and to celebrate big. The joy that you can have in the truth has to come through actually receiving the hard sayings of God. So he begins and we will begin with an encouragement. This is a warning, and the the entire text I read is one unit in the original. But there's in the middle of this an encouragement that I want to give to you, and it needs to hang heavy in your minds as we look at these hard sayings. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And he goes on, he says, and this we will do. If God permits, we discussed this last week and what it does for us is show us that we are under grace. We are not under law, but under grace. It is not by our own works or our own devotion or our own zeal that we enter the kingdom of God. It will always and only be by grace. And that was one of the things that was recovered even in the Protestant reformations. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. It is only by grace. You're saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. Memorize it, live it, and be justified by it. There is freedom and joy in living under this that we will do so if God permits that all is from God. It is by grace. There is freedom and joy in grace. You must trust in God's grace as sufficient to save you. And I would say that trusting in God's grace is the same as trusting in Christ. In fact, Paul calls Jesus the grace of God in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We'll have to say some hard things today because it's part of the whole counsel of God. And it is for our good. And I don't want to make people doubt or to be fragile in your faith or to lose confidence in the sufficiency of Christ and the eternal security of the believer. And the way you don't let those things happen in your own heart is to cling to Christ. It's just like the old hymn says, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But... I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able 
to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You don't have to have everything figured out in your mind, how it all works together. Cling to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. This is exactly the point the author of Hebrews has been making. Consider Christ. Hold fast lest we drift. Hold fast to him. That's the invitation today and every day, regardless of what your testimony has been. Hold fast to Christ. Trust in Him, regardless what will come, regardless of how the future is going to unfold, regardless of what happens on Judgment Day. If your hope and your trust is Christ, you will do well and you will receive your reward. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So in response to this rock solid confidence you should have in the sufficiency of Christ alone to save you when he is your hope and trust, faith alone in Christ alone, on the basis of God's grace alone, that is how you are saved, dear friends. So in response to that rock solid confidence, we could ask a question. And this is the spirit of the warning that the author of Hebrews gives here. What of those who fall away? What of those who stop trusting in Christ? I've said it before. I'll say it again. The saddest word in any human language is apostasy. And is the sin of falling away intentionally from God. I've talked about and mentioned multiple times that part of the motivation behind preaching Hebrews is that I'm tired of losing friends. And their life isn't over and I don't know what God has for them, but I'm tired of seeing friends fall away. It's an alarmingly low percentage of those who once stood with me and worshiped the Lord together who are still clinging to Christ. I'm tired of losing friends. And now I'm a pastor. And one day, according to the author of Hebrews, I'll have to give an answer for you. I don't want to lose any of you. I think of Derek Webb and Joshua Harris prominent figures within evangelicalism who have now denied the faith. There are many others. This is why, brothers and sisters, we spent so long on the phrase, exhort one another. So this doesn't happen. This is the safety net that God has installed into the church to prevent this from happening. Exhorting one another, prodding one another on to love Christ and to cling to Him. Let me say, because I've said it every time we've mentioned this, that I believe and 
I can't not believe, I, I would go insane if I didn't believe this. I believe in eternal security. You can go to John 6. I want you to go there. John 6, beginning in verse 35. Let this be a warm blanket to your doubting heart. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That I should lose nothing of all that the Father, that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He loses nothing of all that the Father has given to him. Eternal security. And a passage from uh, 1 John, I want you to turn there as well. I want this to be in your minds as we discuss these hard truths. 1 John 2, 19. So what of those who fall away? What of those who end up denying the truth of Jesus and say that he's no longer meaningful or Lord of their lives? 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. I love how John speaks. I could listen to his letters all day. So those who fall away, those who come to a place where they deny Christ and they say it was never real, I'm not interested in following Jesus anymore. I want to live my own way. I want these lifestyles that he says are wrong, so he's not Lord of my life. I'm going to live this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us so that it might be plain that they were never of us. So there's two easy answers. Now, I want to caution you and caution myself with these two easy answers. Don't go these two ways. The first easy answer is to say, well, that's not me. I'm really a Christian. That places confidence in yourself. And the second easy answer is to say, well, they'll eventually come back. This text in Hebrews doesn't let you say that. What is better to say is, there but for the grace of God go I. An important question and clarification is this. Are these people losing their salvation? 
Hopefully the passage from 1 John already clarifies that. They were never of us in the beginning. So they never really had salvation and regeneration and the new birth and the new heart. They never had that. They were never of us. So that's why they went out. But a perfect illustration of this is Judas and Peter. Both have really dark times right around the crucifixion of Christ. Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees for silver. And Peter denies Jesus three times, even invoking a curse on himself, saying that he never knew Jesus. But what's the difference? Judas comes to his senses in some way and feels sad about it, and it torments him such to the point that he goes out and buys a field and hangs himself. Peter hears the rooster crows, and he's broken. And he goes out and weeps bitterly. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Not self-hate, not self-destruction, not navel-gazing. Repentance. That's the difference. The author of Hebrews has mentioned the people of Israel multiple times. And this is a perfect example. And I think it's probably what's in his mind when he writes this. If you remember the story of the children of Israel. God had forgiven them at the incident of the golden calf. He had forgiven them multiple times where they had grumbled and complained and doubted Him. And finally, they come to the border of the entrance of the paradise that God has promised them in the promised land. And the spies come back and say, yeah, it's a really good land, but the people are too strong. And so the people look, they're right on the border of receiving God's promise, and they say, no. It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. So they don't believe God. They don't believe that He has the ability to deliver on His promises. They lack faith. Real faith in God. They follow God maybe to this point because it's been convenient for them. Yeah, getting out of Egypt would be really nice. Oh, we don't know where Moses went. Let's make a golden calf. Oh, wow, it'd be really great to have our own land, but oh, now we're out of food, so now we doubt God. Oh, it'd be really great to have our own land, but oh, there are giants in the land, so God can't deliver. They follow God up to this point because it was convenient, and they've lacked faith, and they tested Him, and finally God says, you won't enter. You're not going to go in. All of you over the age of 20 will fall in the wilderness and die, and only Joshua and Caleb from this generation will enter. They did not have faith. They were not united by faith to those who listened. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. So the difference is repentance and faith. And it sounds so basic and simple, but that's the point here, brothers and sisters. What distinguishes those who fall away and those who maybe have really rough patches yet return is repentance and faith. Many people, when they read this 
passage get hung up on this phrase, shared in the Holy Spirit. It is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Does this mean regeneration, a new birth, a new heart? No. Again, think of the illustration of the people of Israel. Had they not seen God's work? Have they not, had they not shared in the manifest presence of God the work of the Spirit in their midst to work miracles? And think of Judas. He went out. He was one of the ones who went out in groups of two and even cast out demons, preached the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And yet falls away. He says, the author of Hebrews, let us strive. This is from chapter four. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What kind of disobedience? Look at Hebrews three verses 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Past tense. That's very important. We have come in shared to, to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Those people who had seen the mighty works of God, who had received the Ten Commandments, who had seen the manifest, real presence of God on the mountain, shaking the earth, the lightning, the cloud, the smoke, and the braying of the trumpet louder and louder. They saw it. And yet when it came time to obey, they said no. And we have to deal with this word, impossible. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. They sought repentance, but it was not available to them. Do you remember what happened after God promised that they would not enter the land and that those over 20 would die in the wilderness? They come to their senses in a degree and they say, all right, we'll go, we'll go. Maybe the giants will kill us, but that'll be better than wandering around in the wilderness until all of us die off. So we'll go now. Moses says, don't sin against God in this way. God has made his decision. You will not enter. Oh, we'll go. We don't want to die in the wilderness. Let's go and try to take the land. And they go and it's a failed attempt and many die and they retreat. Turn to Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. 
Here's another example of the impossibility. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls, fails rather, to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You may come to a place, dear friend, where you see the consequences of your sin and you want to repent, maybe just because you would like things not to be so bad for you, but you have hardened your heart so much that you cannot love Christ. You only see Him as a way out of the consequences of your sin. We'll go into the promised land now. We don't want to die in the desert. And repentance won't be possible for you. Don't harden your hearts. There's no way around this word. True Christian repentance is not just coming to a place of being sad about the consequences of your sin, but it's returning to your father in faith. If you harden your heart enough, you will one day come to a place where you're not able to repent. And so there's a sober question in this. Have I come to that place? Have I come to that place? What are the signs? Let's move to the next phrase. I think he answers that question. Back to Hebrews 6. This is in the middle of verse 6. Since... This is why it's impossible. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This kind of hardening of your heart, of being so close to the waterfall of God's grace, you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, you've seen the Spirit work, He has been drawing you to Himself, and then you say, no. You begin hardening your heart and drifting away. What you're doing in that case is crucifying once again the Son of God to your own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This phrase explains the nature of this falling away. And it also explains why it's so serious. Crucifying again. Obviously, this can't be literal. You're not literally crucifying Jesus again. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's Romans 6 verse 9. But think of the crowds. 
the crowds that saw Jesus after Pilate brought him out and said, Behold, the man, what did they say? Away with him. Away with him. Give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. Let his blood be on us and on our children. When you walk away, when you fall away, when you disdain Christ, you're essentially saying the same thing as the crowds. I have no king but myself. I will be my own God. I will be the captain of my soul. Give me the pleasures of this world. Give me Barabbas. They're crucifying again. The Son of God to their own harm. It's as if God is saying, okay. Okay. I will honor the independence of your own will and you can have what you want. Holding him up to contempt. There is a sin of indifference if you have been enlightened, if you have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If you say of all of that, this is no good. I don't want it. I want my life. I want my way. I want my pleasures. I want this world. No man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other, or he will love the other and hate the one. It's contempt. You have to respond to the light that you've received, and that gives us the gravity of preaching. Every time you come and hear the Word of God proclaimed, insofar as it is from the text, it's as if God is speaking to you directly, commanding you to repent, commanding you to hold fast. But be careful, because you can say, well, I haven't done that. I would never do that. I would never hold Jesus up to contempt. I would never crucify him again. I would never cry out with the crowds, give us Barabbas, let his blood be on us and on our children. But there's a more subtle way of doing that. And that's what the next text gives us, I believe. Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those, whose, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So agrarian illustrations are illustrations that talk about land and cultivation, planting seed, are throughout the Bible. And they teach us about the final day of judgment. And they're all throughout Scripture. Think of the story of the seed and the sower, the master and the field, even the real illustration of the fig tree that Jesus cursed, and the vineyard and the hired hands. And there are many, many more. They're, they're, they're everywhere. Illustrations using planting and gardening and growing to teach us about what God is doing in the world and to point us towards the truth of the final day. God designed the world that way to teach us about Himself. We don't have time to go through each of them, though I would love to. You know that. Um, we're going to go to one. Go to Matthew 13. 
Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and a great crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, that means scattering seed, right? Sowing. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Now other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil, and it produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who hear, has ears, let him hear. And you can skip down. We actually talked about verses 10 through um, 17 last week. We also mentioned this passage last week, beginning in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They've received, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and they've received it maybe with a measure of joy. Yet, he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So all of these illustrations give us the same idea that what God wants from our lives is produce. He wants to turn a harvest in our hearts after receiving the word. We are not saved by works. This is, again, going back to the idea of the Reformation. This was recovered after it had long been lost and even been made illegal. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. It is not the works. It is not the fruit that comes from the word of God being sown in your heart that saves you. That is not the basis of your right standing before God. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 2.10. This is after he's mentioned, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If there's no fruit at all, no good works, and there's only thorns, there's only bitterness and deceit, and deceiving yourself and having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 
then what the word of God says of you is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Take that sober, severe warning seriously. Don't harden your hearts. I want to give an encouragement. Just pause here. We're going to end with encouragement. We began with encouragement. We're going to end with encouragement. And here's just an encouragement in the middle. Because that's the point of this text. Even with the severe warning. I want to encourage the land laying fallow. If you've been involved with planting and gardening at all or ranching or farming. The idea of lying fallow is where the land is essentially being prepared. There's no fruit necessarily, but maybe underneath the soil there's a change. The nutrition is being put back into the soil. The decomposition of the dead matter is working to make the soil more fruitful. There's no fruit above the surface, but things are going on underneath. And one day when the rain falls... And the seed of the word of God is there. It will spring forth. So don't be discouraged if that's happening. So the other way, based on this, this illustration of the land, the other way we can fall away is by claiming to be in Christ and never having any real fruit. You don't just have to be one in the crowd saying, Away with them, away with them, give us Barabbas. You don't have to just be that. That's very pronounced, that's very severe, that's very decisive. But it can also be like this. Look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That description of doing many mighty works in his name and casting out demons, that's Judas. He did that. And for Judas, it wasn't standing with the crowd saying, away with him, away with him. If you read closely the Gospel of John, he helped himself to the money bag. For him, it was greed. It wasn't this big, huge thing of denying central tenets of the Christian faith. He just wanted money. And so when he realized that, wow, staying with Jesus isn't going to make me rich, he betrayed him. That's why we must anathematize the prosperity gospel, just as an aside. It's vile. It will lead you to the place of Judas. So I said we'd end on encouragement, and that is what this text does. There's actually two encouragements. He says this, after giving them this severe warning, one of the most uncomfortable, difficult passages of all Scripture, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And my response to that would be to the author of Hebrews, then why say this warning? 
Why warn them with such severe words if you're sure that in their case of better things, of things that belong to salvation? So he looks at them, he sees them, and he says, in your case, I'm sure of salvation. Then why warn them this way? I want to tell a story from my life. Uh, I was, I, I don't know how old I was, I don't remember. I could ask my dad and he could tell you exactly, um, because the day is probably ingrained on his mind. My dad it was actually a, a pilot, uh, not commercially, just privately. He flew planes from before I was born and uh, up until he got cancer. Um, and we would often go on business trips with him, and so he would fly his plane, and we'd get to fly with him. And, and you know, if, you're, if you own your own plane, you've got to maintenance it, you've got to do things, you've got to go and take certain tests and make sure things are working and all this stuff. It's a big, it's a big uh, ownership thing. And the plane belonged to his company, so. Um, but he took me up in the plane. It was a Cessna 310. That doesn't mean anything to you, but it does to me. <laughs> um... And the way the plane worked is, is you got in on the passenger side. That's where the door was. Um, so there's just one door, and you climb up on the wing, and you get in, and you sit down. And So it's just me and my dad. And I'm really little. I didn't really start growing up to what I sh how tall and big I should have been until I was about 16. Really little. So uh, we take off. You know, things go normally. And if you're sitting in the passenger seat, that means the door is right here. And so it's my job to shut the door. So I thought I'd shut the door. When you get off the plane, you get, uh, get off the ground, rather, in the plane, get to about 5,000 feet or so, you, you kind of want to get up and look around, right? You can see the land from up in the plane, and things look great, and you see it passing by. It's just a really surreal experience. But I'm little, right? I'm really short. So I'm buckled in, like you should be, when you take off. But once you're high enough, you really don't need to wear your seatbelt anymore, right? Unless you're really rambunctious, with that's this point, I'd kind of pass that. Um, and I'm really little, and I want to see out the window, and the windows are about right here. And I say to my dad, Dad, is it okay for me to take my seatbelt off now so I can see out the window? And this is very common. Like, this isn't him being uh, doing an exception to what is normal. So he says, Yeah, sure. It's so, like the pilot turns off the seatbelt sign, right? And I get up on my knees, I put my legs underneath myself, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm just having a great time, right? I'm up with my dad and my airplane, and <laughs> my airplane. We Technically, the children do own it, because, but I won't get into the legalese of it. Um, and for some reason, and we as Christians would know exactly why, he says, the way he relates the story is that he began to have this feeling, bad feeling. And he says, Joshua, we're okay, but I would feel better if you put your seatbelt back on. And so without hesitation, I put my legs back down and snap it. And it was not but three seconds after that that the door flies open. As the cabin is repressurizing, it bursts the door open and I thought I'd closed it. That was my job. But within a split second, I find my whole torso out on the wing and my hands on the area where you walk up, being pulled against the seatbelt. I didn't plan on getting emotional about this. 
And my dad grabs me. He leans over, shuts the door, and we land immediately. He says, don't tell mom. (laughs) And for many years, mom didn't hear about it. (laughs) That story haunted my dad for years. He would have nightmares about it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that you might live long in the land. This is very serious. Maybe it won't come to something that serious, but obey your parents in the Lord. The Lord is caring for you, young people, through obeying your parents. And that's the point. Me bringing up this analogy. What if I had hesitated? What if I had said, oh, dad, come on. I wouldn't be here. So the author looks at his church, this church that he's writing to, to, and he sees just the beginning hints, just a little bit of teetering. We have to be Gracious towards them because they're being persecuted for being Christians. The Jews don't like them because they say Jesus is the Messiah. The Romans don't like them because they say Jesus is Lord. So they're receiving persecution from both sides. So they're thinking, can we just go back to being hated by one? Do we really have to be hated by both and persecuted by both as Christians? Maybe we don't have to be so zealous for Jesus. Why can't we just go back to Egypt Things were all right. He just sees the beginning of teetering. If I had hesitated one split second more, I would have died. But if, he had, if my dad had sensed in me any hesitation, don't you think it would have been fitting and good for once we got back down on the ground for him to say, make sure you always obey. You obeyed and you're alive, but make sure you always obey. So he says to them, we feel sure in your case of better things. So my dad commended me for obedience. In your case, we feel sure of more things, but make sure you always obey. He calls them beloved or dear friends. This affection leads to seriousness. Solomon says in the Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of the enemy. So I want to encourage you, in your case, brothers and sisters, I feel more sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For those of you who profess Christ as your Lord, I feel sure of better things. But make sure that you do not run in vain or that I don't labor in vain. This surety, this feeling of confidence does not remove the need for the warning. Rather, it intensifies it. Because think of this, if you're in Christ, if you are truly in Christ, if he is your confidence and your hope and you've been given the new birth and the new heart and you're in the covenant. If you are one of his that the Father has given to him, no amount of warnings will undo your faith. 
No amount of difficult preaching will put into question your eternal security. And no severe sounding truths or statistics of those falling away can even threaten to undo you. Your destiny is sure. Praise God. But if you are not in Christ, if you're playing church, if you're on the path to destruction, if there's no real fruit, no even changes beneath the soil to make fruit possible, if you have an appearance of godliness but deny its power, then maybe sermons like this will wake you up. Maybe these warnings will show you the peril that you're in. Maybe being serious and severe will turn you away before it's everlasting too late. You can turn to James's epistle, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 19. This is how he ends his letter. Jesus' bold younger brother. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a, sin, a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It is only Jesus that saves the soul. It is only the blood of Jesus that covers the multitude of sins. But we are involved in the saving of our friends by exhorting them and prodding them to turn away from sin, to bring them back from their wandering. And that's what I'm doing today, which leads us to the final Encouragement. Back to Hebrews. Chapter six. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I love this passage. It's become dear to me as I've studied this text and wrestled with it and tried to get ready for the sermon since before we began the series on Hebrews. It clarifies so many things. This is why he's sure of better things. Because God, because God is not unjust. God is merciful and gracious, returning us again to this idea of salvation by grace. It's not our own doing. It is the free gift of God. But is he saying here that we're saved by works? Look at how he says that. He's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. No, we are not saved by works. What do the works and the love do? This is why it's very important to pay attention to little words in your Bible. Look at what he says. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Why? To. That's a very, if, if you are the type of person to write or highlight or circle in your Bible, circle that word. 
We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Good works and loving the brothers produce in your heart assurance. This is a theme in the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And John says in 1 John 2.3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test? And James. James 1, 23-25, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For if he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like, for he forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The blessing of obedience is not salvation. It is assurance. Look at the basis of inheritance. Look, at, look at back at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators who of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. The way you inherit salvation, the promise of salvation, is through faith and patience. Not works, not the love of the brothers, but the way you have assurance in Christ is through love and good works. Faith alone in Christ alone saves you. But the way that you can be sure that you have come to share in Christ is if you persevere with love and good works. And please, if I have not made this clear, I've tried to make it abundantly clear what I'm saying about love and good works. Please come talk to me. I don't just want to hear compliments after the sermon. I want to hear, hey, this didn't make sense. Can you explain that? Okay. It's important that we highlight this word so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word he used back in chapter 5 when he says you have become dull. No English translation translates them the same, but it's the exact same word in the original. Dull and sluggish. So that it makes this a whole unit. That's why we read it. So that you would not be dull in the way that we said that's going to lead to this destruction. This is what I want you to do. As Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that has been given to you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As Jesus says to the church in the Revelation, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. So just a few points of application. I know we've gone long and I'm sorry. Apply this to your life through repentance. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There are no blessings in salvation that do not come through the front door of repentance. And if you struggle with assurance, brothers and sisters, read 1 John. That's my encouragement to you. If you struggle at all with assurance that you are in Christ, read 1 John. And when you're done, read it again. And when you're done, read it again. And over and over until those verses become second nature to you. And then read the Psalms. And see the broad spectrum of doubt and fear that can come into the heart of the one who loves God and be encouraged through the faithfulness of God. And then read the Gospel of John. And then start over. Those books for me, and the reason I'm saying that is for me, in moments of lacking assurance, dark nights of the soul, those three places have been healing for me. There are many other things we could say in application, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say look around. Your brothers and sisters who are struggling and snatch them from the fire. If any one of you restores someone from his wandering, he will save his soul from death. That's your purpose in your brothers and sisters' lives. Even if you sense just a small teetering, even a slight hesitation, exhort. Also, devote yourselves to good works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not on the basis of works. And that frees us to do good works for God for the right reasons. If you want to build assurance in your heart and serve your brothers, devote yourselves to love and to good works. I want to end by reading Hebrews 12. And this reminds us of our great reward. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12. We already read this portion, but to give it the flavor of why this warning is important. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For... You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion the heavenly mountain. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, I pray that The words I've spoken have been at the same time a warning and an encouragement that we would know that we have come to know you, the consuming fire. I pray that we would exhort one another. I pray that we would commit ourselves to love and to good works so that we may have the full assurance of faith. Let our confidence be in Christ alone. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.